Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is still the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. Four things that they cherish, and one thing they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is Bob Cryer, who is the son of one of our most popular guests on My Time Capsule, the much-loved and greatly missed Barry Cryer. Bob is an actor, director, producer and writer. His 20-plus years of acting includes work on TV, such as a recurring role in the new BBC cop drama Interceptor, Outnumbered, Our Hidden Lives, EastEnders, Holby City, Doctors, Highlander, Coronation Street, The Bill and Victoria Wood's Christmas Special, amongst others. And he's been in films like Legend with Tom Harvey and David Thewlis, Superbad with Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen and Emma Stone, the Adventures of Maid Marian, in which he played the Sheriff of Nottingham, and Grimsby with Sasha Baron Cohen. As a writer, Bob wrote Mrs. Hudson's Diaries with his dad about Sherlock Holmes's housekeeper, which became Mrs. Hudson's radio show for BBC Radio 4. He's written scripts, plays, and most recently, his very personal biography of his dad, Barry Cryer. Same time tomorrow, The Life and Laughs of a Comedy Legend, which is out now. His podcast, Made With His Dad, Now Where Were We?, in the same pub where I recorded my much-loved episode of My Time Capsule with Barry, has some amazing guests, such as Barry Humphreys, Sandy Toxfig, Joe Brown, Giles Brandreth, Sanjeev Bhaskar, Miriam Margulies, Rebecca Front, Danny Baker, and the great Stephen Fry. Tragically, that's all they managed before Barry's death. But it's all still there to be enjoyed, so go search it out. So what do you think the things are that Bob would choose from his life to put in his time capsule? And how many of his dad's jokes can he remember? Let's find out, shall we? Here is Bob Cryer's time capsule. Lovely to meet you, I have to say. I know, it's a surprise we haven't met before. 
It's very surprising. I mean, I, I knew your dad for years and years yes. and years. And I think it was probably maybe a bit of a surprise for you that uh, I knew him that well. He knew so many people, of course. Well, I think the two of you share an amiability and a, an affability <laughs> in the industry that that means you're you know you're good to work with you're fun to be around and you probably didn't mind uh, a jar or two after a job as well no. so that's probably when you would have seen dad most <laughs> most yeah yeah because i i don't know how many shows you worked on together i know you did some radio yeah we did we did a number of radio things together but i mean he was nearly always at those social events i would go and see yeah. recordings he was in or he would come and see recordings i was in and then we would sit afterwards and we would just chat in the pub. And it's it's amazing the affection you can develop for someone, isn't it, over those brief yeah. little meetings that you have, you know, every six months, every nine months, and, the, and certainly annually. That's what I remember is always the BBC Light Entertainment Christmas parties. He was a re- regular fixture. I think, they, <laughs> you know, they didn't start until Dad arrived, that kind of thing. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. And he was always the one who decided when they'd run out of wine or they weren't <laughs> going to serve anymore, and it's time to let's go to the pub. And yeah. that was it. Yeah. yeah, he was very consistent in that regard. I mean, he was very consistent as a personality as well, mm-hmm. which is a lot to do with people's fondness for him. Because I think all the people that I value as friends, I can guarantee what they're going to be like when I see them, and yeah. the, the years just melt away. And there's friends I, you know, I've got from from school and from university and drama school, and it tends to be the same three or four people, and that's usually because they are exactly the same, and that's yeah. what you you long for in friendship sometime. And I think Dad provided that for lots of people and he was he was sort of a and i mean this in the nicest way possible he was like wallpaper you know very very attractive very ornate very colorful wallpaper but people just felt comfortable in his presence and that's quite a skill and it's quite a talent and you have to work hard at it i think yeah as dad did to be just like any great performer which he was and great writer to make it look that easy takes effort well, to not impose yourself on people is always a difficult thing, isn't it? Because he yes. could easily have dominated yeah. almost any situation, but rarely did. And that comes from insecurity, doesn't it? When people try and force themselves on a situation because they're usually as frightened or more so than everybody else in the room. But uh, uh, not to say Dad wasn't without his, you know, neuroses and anxieties, and I'm sure we'll discuss a few over the next hour or so. But uh, I think the great thing about people like your dad... And there are very few like them, obviously. But the thing you really notice about those people is that they are absolutely as willing to laugh uproariously at somebody else's joke as they are to tell their own. Absolutely. Milton Jones said that in Mm -hmm. uh, the memorial service uh, for Dad last year and then followed it by saying, I wish he was here now. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Which is sort of a, a nice companion piece to... Uh, and I, I, I won't waste my credits early, but um, uh, to Jack D, one of his very first stints as host of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Yeah. Not fresh from Hump Dying because there was an hiatus after that where they tried out Rob Brydon and, mm-hmm. and Stephen Fry. And they'd already done the first series and famously then went on to do the live shows, which were the kind of greatest hits. And uh, they were at the Rose Theatre Kingston. And John Gilgood said to a young actor once, never pause on stage because you never know what you're going to hear. And he said, I paused on stage once and I heard a woman in the third row say, oh, you beast, you've come all over my umbrella. Um, (laughs) I do apologise for my mother. 
She's a terrible woman. <laughs> well, at least, you know, at least, at least she had a subscription. Um, but, uh, and Jack D paused after an intro, as he likes to do. He's very good at very good deadpan with, uh, with the, the silences. And he heard a man in the front row say, and I think it was caught on the mic, say, uh, oh, it's not the same without Humphrey Littleton, is it? And Jack D knew everyone had heard this. Mm. He said, oh, dear Humph, you know, where is he now? I envy him. <laughs> brilliant yeah brilliant but i we, love listening we, to the recordings of yeah. those things though bob your dad it, again that's a sign of his generosity is is although he always i mean we know that they all had their lines worked out in a way some of them some of them not yes although often the best ones were you know obviously that underpinned the process but yeah. as you know often in recordings if you're allowed a little bit of slack the best stuff comes up you know, on the night. Yes. And of course, in fact, your dad's laugh would make (laughs) everybody else laugh much more. That's a sign of generosity. You could always hear him laughing at the other performers. Graham Garden's wife, Helen, when I interviewed Graham, and and she was present for that and and contributed greatly to the interview as well for, Mm. um, for the book, said, I still listen to Clue now and I expect to hear your dad's laugh. Huh. Still now, you know, all these several episodes later, it's it's um, Colin Sell said that they never really discussed their roles. And I'm talking about the, the sort of uh, the pantheon of, of originals yeah, yeah. with Humph in the chair, Woody Rushton and Tim Brooke Taylor to his right and dad and Graham to his left. And he said, well, you know, Graham is the sort of uh, the uh, the slow ticking time bomb <laughs> you know the perler is coming the great witty line that always made the edit and nearly all of graham's contributions made the edit because they yeah. were little nuggets of gold willie would say something you know off kilter and probably catch everyone by surprise <laughs> in terms of their you know social mores or, or he would say something quite waspish and he said tim was sort of the audience's eyes and ears and sort of enjoying it as they did and he was kind of the every man and and you know was a lot of fun and and, and Humph obviously was the headmaster who'd accidentally mm. walked into the common room you know <laughs> just never quite seeming in place which was just absolutely perfect and he said your dad's role was almost like the team captain he was the cheerleader and he brought the energy and dad often in you know long recordings uh, as you know with radio shows hour and a half, two hours or whatever. Mm. Dad was consistently telling jokes that wouldn't make the edit because they weren't, I'm not saying uh, inappropriate in terms of their subject matter, but he would just feed all this material into the broadcast or into the uh, recording rather. Uh, And it would be responsible for keeping the audience up and it would be responsible for making the others laugh. Mm -hmm. And he said that was something that he established quite early on and, and the others sort of relied on in a way. I mean, Dad did spend a lot of his time doing warm-up, and I think that helped in recordings like that, is he would sort of take on the role of the warm-up who would normally come in when there was a camera breakdown or something. But Mm. obviously in... uh, You sort of don't have that in the radio recording, though, do you? No. Ross Noble did a bit of warm-up for radio, and he told a lovely story to... to, um, You'll you'll get the... uh, um, uh, the sort of rubric of the way I tell stories now, given that I've just finished <laughs> writing this book about dad, but it's always dad used to tell stories about other people. And he's tried, he tried to write autobiographies and he, he wrote one and his agent said, Barry, this is a wonderful book full of wonderful anecdotes and wonderful stories and jokes, but none of them are about you, <laughs> which is very telling about his psychology. And what I had to do for the book about dad was sort of slightly psychoanalyze that without, 
killing the frog, to keep the analogy of, you know, overanalyzing comedy is like, uh, you know, dissecting a frog. Nobody laughs and the frog dies, yeah. which is E.B. White, incidentally. Is the, it? The origin of that observation. I often uh, attributed to your dad. Yes. And I'm, I'm very loath to correct people about that, even though I just did that almost to myself, because I write about that in the book in as much as saying dad was brilliant at condensing other people's material now I should be you know very careful to say that that's <laughs> condensing other people's material not ripping them off because he would usually come up with a better version of it but of course what he's doing there is he's turning it into something that works when you say it yeah absolutely and he was you know always writing to be performed whether it was his own stuff uh, and my reason for telling that story is that when I then tell stories, and I, I would, you know, Dad would tell a story about Arthur Askey, and he'd say, Tommy Trinder once told me that he was working with Arthur Askey, and so mm-hmm. I've got to say, my dad told me about a story that Tommy Trinder had told about Arthur Askey. <laughs> yeah, and quite. suddenly it's like, you know, six degrees of separation. But, uh, <laughs> I think that that was possibly one of the reasons why your dad rang everybody up and told them jokes all the time, is because he was sort of using that conversation to hone the material. Oh, yes. He'd already been around the dinner table at home. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> working it out. But he did ring me and told me the Archbishop of Canterbury joke. So just, that's just before he died, isn't it? That is the last joke he ever told. I can, there I we can, are. I, yeah. I can confirm. Right. But it was one that was, you know, in, in uh, vinyl shops, they have a now playing stand next to the till. And that's the way I, I you know, used to imagine dad on the phone. It's like, this is, this is today's joke. Yeah. Or it was that week's joke, at least. And it's a perler. It's a brilliant joke. He loved those ones that were like little plays, little yeah, yeah. sort of short stories. And, and he wanted to be a journalist when he first went to university. I say first. I mean, he only went once, and he never, he never completed it. He always used to describe himself as uh, BA Inglet failed at Leeds University. Yes, um, he failed on account of the the outbreak of the Second World War, which was sixteen years previously, but upset him very deeply. <laughs> Yeah, I'm spending my inheritance a bit too quickly, I think. No, no. No, I'm sure you've got loads of it. (laughs) We shall talk then about five things you want to put into a time capsule from your life, really. But I'm I'm sure that is, to a large extent, a life involved with your father. Yes. To me, anybody who studies his life, he went through every form of comedy. He worked with every style of comedian, and he never lost his enthusiasm for it. And also, it's the generosity of his working life, I think. You probably don't know this, because almost everybody you meet must tell you a story about your dad that you go, yeah, that's that's him. Uh, But I did a lot of radio comedy. Uh, all sorts of different comedy all the time. And we would discuss it and talk about it. And, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that performer. And he was always very generous about people. And then I I got cast in a very, very serious radio drama. And it was the first time I'd done a really serious radio drama. I worked really, really hard on it. And I was very pleased with it. It was an afternoon play. And as it finished, the phone rang. And it was your dad. And he said, hello, Mike, Baz. <laughs> Yeah, I went, no, Baz. He said, I just listened to the most fantastic radio play. And at the end, it said, you were in it. He said, I had no idea. It was absolutely brilliant. Well done. Oh. It makes me well up to think of it because it was one of the highest compliments I'd ever been paid. And so quickly after the... Immediately. Um, yeah. After the airing of it, which yeah. he did all the time mm-hmm. uh, to people, uh, to the extent that Michael Palin said... 
he knows more about my career than I do because I'd, <laughs> I'd forgotten something was on. Yeah. <laughs> and then Baz would call and he would tell me how much he loved it. But isn't that lovely, isn't uh, it Mike, lovely? To, to hear that? And just to hear it from someone else, because as you say, that that was a, you know, I, 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 I have just the most wonderful legacy, really, to digest and invest in and, yeah. and, and experience time and again. And that was the, the you know, I'd, I'd obviously swap it all to have him back. But, of course. Uh, but the outpouring of love and affection following his death was peppered with stories like that that were, again, this consistency thing again. It was consistent in the joy and the fun mm. that he was able to communicate but also celebrate. Like you say, other, it wasn't just all about, you know, him making people laugh and then, you know, sitting back and taking the applause. He would then just lean in and find out, you know, someone else's joke and laugh at that too. Mm. But I I had uh, anonymous people on, I mean, they weren't anonymous because they had Twitter handles, but they were anonymous in the sense that they I'd get um, messages on Twitter from people going, I don't know you, and I didn't actually really know your dad, but I sat with him on a tube train and it was the, one of the funniest 20 minutes of my life. So I just wanted to say that. And he said, I'm terminally gregarious. I'm a peopleaholic. I did have lots of stories like that. And it was a, a gift for friendship, a gift for staying in touch, for phoning people up when they'd been in things, but also birthdays. That's what he became quite famous for. If yeah. you were... <laughs> Yeah. Because he would sit on Saturday morning and sort of go, not with a highlighter, but sort of go through go through all the birthdays in the way that some people of an age go through the obituaries. And, you know, he would read those too, but but he would err on the positive side of things and, and look up people's birthdays. And if he didn't know them, but there was some vague connection in terms of someone else they'd worked with or he just liked their work, he'd get mm-hmm. their number. Yeah, uh, He was not technically proficient at all. Me and one of my brothers were invariably lent on to to, to search for <laughs> someone. Could research. you get me so-and-so's number? I mean, to add to uh, that story about the radio drama, yeah. that was the first time he rang me. Seriously. So it's not that he just had my number to hand. He would have phoned Jeffrey Perkins or he uh, would have uh, phoned... Exactly. Strangely, he said, I'm sorry to ring you. I, I got, got your number from Jan Ravens. Right. <laughs> so it was one of those. He knew how to yeah. do it. But he'd yeah. done that in seconds. It was just one of the greatest compliments I've ever been paid. Oh, well... You know, let's uh, hear cheers to that. But let's talk to you then, Bob, yes. about the things that you would choose okay. to put into the time okay. capsule then. Now, I, I, I will preface that, obviously, by saying Dad has been on this podcast. Yeah. He and I had a foray into the podcast world. And our you know part of our marketing for it was uh, Barry Cryer is delighted to be starting a new podcast. And when he finds out what one is, <laughs> he'll be even happier. Um <laughs> But it was called Now Where Were We? And I think most of the people we had on the on the podcast, probably barring Joe Brown, have been on yours. Yeah, that's um, true. But Dad was on yours. Mm. And I think you <laughs> uh, it did it did rather it was a sort of a um you know, two worlds collide because I think we were we weren't quite yet recording ours yet when he did yours. That's right. But he is such a um, was such an inveterate storyteller, and uh, Andy Hamilton says your your anecdotes hunt in packs. <laughs> and and Ray, Ray Cameron, who he worked with on Kenny Everett, said, "I just wish I could say something to you, which didn't remind you of something else." <laughs> now you you yeah. found that when you and you were brilliantly sort of egging him on and supportive and wanted to hear all the stories, just like everyone does. Mm. And it's what we had with our podcast, and we put him in front of people that were of a similar bent like Danny Baker and Stephen Fry and Joe Joe Brown and Miriam Margulies who love trading stories 
stories, which is a very old fashion sort of form of storytelling, really. Yeah. Is you let someone tell a full, you know, a full anecdote rather than, you know, what we have largely now dominating the sort of podcast sphere, which is banter. Mm-hmm. Banter radio, banter TV, and done well. It's brilliant, but it's also, you know, it speaks to a to an older age when you're coming up with anecdotes. So what you had with his edition of of your podcast was <laughs> was I think you sifted through what he'd said in order to present him with the five things. Yes. And I don't think you came up with something that he wanted to jettison. Or... He said, "I'm not interested in that." Well, there you go. I mean, that's absolutely dad, and it very wouldn't want to speak ill of anyone or even anything um and in turn i as a lot of people i know on your show do say that the one thing that you want to to banish from memory is the most difficult to come up with and yeah uh, Mm. so i'll come to that uh i'll come to that later but um but i think i i think you what you settled on with dad was a photo of his dad yes i i think there was uh, a couple of clue moments there's a wonderful story that's in the book about uh his audition at the windmill when mm. he was on the 16th day of his 17 day return from leeds down to london at the penultimate day with van damme with vivian van damme yeah. or bob hoskins as uh, as people <laughs> know, him, know him as these days and he got the job and no no spoilers there i think for for, for fans of my dad but it's you know typical of a, of a good story that um you know he was about to tear his hair out and, and uh, go back with his tail between his legs back to Leeds and then he got the job and yes and of course the telling of that story involved lots of sideways steps oh absolutely there's a, a, lo- a lovely story about the the turn that was on before him but it was when he came back to the stage door having not got the job just to congratulate dad yes yeah, getting his and it you know to anyone in this business or you know anything remotely connected with it I mean, in fact or even not you know anyone in any business yeah. to have that amount of good grace in what is a cutthroat industry to take the time to congratulate a young comedian and wish them well when you were going right where where am i going next mm. um it takes a lot so i'm i'm really pleased you you picked that out of of his stories because it did inform a lot of his career from that point on Yes, you can see that reflected again and again. Absolutely. I mean, and 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 as as you said about uh, him calling you up, there's echoes. That's a post echo of those people who you know in modern parlance, Dad never would have used phrases like this, but paying it forward. But he was very well treated by people like David Nixon and David Frost and other people not called David, like Danny Larue <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Vivian Van Dam. And he was given a leg up. And in recognizing that, he obviously then took that kind of charity and people like Michael Palin and Eric Idle say he was the first person to come over and welcome us into the room. And these were university graduates with, you know, Terry Jones is about the only one who had a BBC credit, I think, Mm. on the Frost Report. But Mike Palin and and Eric Idle both said, your dad and Marty Feldman were the two people who came over and made us feel at home. Amazing. Didn't have to do it. It It was another job. Obviously, Frost was a big name, so it was a big deal but still no guarantee of success. No, no, and actually... quite easy to see them. I don't want these new clever boys coming in. Yeah, you know, no, yes. I'm going to stamp on them. Absolutely, because mm. he sat in a very peculiar position in the 20th century in terms of comedy, because he, he came from only by like six or seven years. was That was the age difference between him and the Pythons. Mm. But also because he was you know, not from a university background. You know, he was, um, what was that? I was trying to remember the name of the, the, the person who told this wonderful story about the oh it's Humphrey Littleton (laughs) about hearing dad singing in a jazz band on the steps of uh, Leeds Town Hall 
uh, which is what he spent most of his time doing. And Humph came over to uh, to speak to him. So they met in 1955. Good Lord. Uh, well in advance of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. And Humph was quite a big star by that point already. Mm. And they were just you know, putting their instruments away and said to Dow, I heard you playing on the steps of Leeds Town Hall. Oh, thanks very much. Said, it wasn't hard. You were very loud. <laughs> <laughs> But but the dad uh, saying that he didn't come from a university background, he he sort of he was variety musical. That was just the uh, not the dying embers. It was still you know burning quite brightly, I suppose, in the in the early fifties at least. Yeah. Like Max Miller was a you know huge star at that point. Mm. Yeah, the men who hired people to write them jokes and then told those jokes. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so he sort of straddled those two realms quite comfortably in the end. But, yeah, um, and then also formed a partnership with, with Graham Chapman for a long time, didn't he? he wrote, that's they, right, they wrote that's together. right. We'll maybe come back to that later. Yes, indeed. But I, I, I realise I must attend to our... <laughs> to uh, the format. Uh, to, yes, to the format. <laughs> it's all right, it's a crier tradition. It is don't obviously worry. a crier tradition, but um, I don't know how often people do this, but they, they sort of do the, sneak things in the back door by saying, I did consider and then rattle off four things mm-hmm. in order to get them in, but... I'll start with Dad, because that's where we've started, and that's the majority of our conversation. And one of the main reasons why I'm here Mm. is because I've written a book to celebrate his life. Uh, And the first thing you'll see on the cover is a shock of white hair and glasses, and that's what he was known for. And for someone who is, you know, uh, again, in in sort of uh, uh, modern PR, very authentic, an authentic figure, uh, those glasses always make me smile because... By around about the sort of early 90s, his eyes began to correct themselves. <laughs> so actually, he didn't need them. No. And it was one of the very few bits of fakery about Dad. Well, in um, a way, it was his image by then, though, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he always came third in a Barry Took lookalike competition. <laughs> it was, Barry Took came second. And late period, Ronnie Barker was uh, came <laughs> yeah, first quite. in that one. So the white hair and glass, I get, you know, George Burns and, and you know, sort of uh, even, you know, towards the end of his life, Groucho Marx and people like that. Were, mm. uh, well, they're a great comic device, of course, glasses. Yeah. Yes. They work well. I mean, Eric Morecambe is a prime example of just Absolutely. pushing them back on at the right time for timing. Those yeah. things can be used beautifully. Well, John Junkin, when Dad and he wrote for uh, Eric and Ernie, John Junkin always hated it, but Dad used to refer to Eddie Braben as the A-team. Ah. Quite rightly, he was the man responsible for turning them from, you know, Morecambe and Wise, the very popular, very traditional sketch variety comedians, into mm. Eric and Ernie, this sort of quasi-sitcom, this wonderful relationship that he worked between the two of them because he'd started to notice how codependent they were yeah and when he was unable to write for them because he was under contract to the bbc as well as a spot of ill health later on that meant john john and and uh, john junkin and dad had to uh, had to step in dad said well we're not going to try and do that we're going to stick to what we do best mm. which was you know the kind of big visual gags that fans of kenny everett and, and hello cheeky for for, for those that uh, <laughs> remember that on on the radio and yeah. then and then briefly on on television were all about um so i'm not going to choose those no <laughs> i'm not going <laughs> to choose his classes <laughs> uh, i am going to choose an object of dad's that I think better sums him up. But I think it's a nice way in to talk about his image because he was often sort of accused of consistency, as I've done, and of, and of, a, and of a real uh, generosity with his image and saying, you know, I don't want to be the star, but I'm happy to write for him or her. Um, so the thing I've chosen um, is a small plastic bird that sat on my parents' kitchen table 
on a pedestal, on a, a tiny plastic pedestal, from about 1997, not to be too precise. <laughs> I can carbon date it because he bought it whilst working on uh, an audience with Ronnie Corbett. Now, here's a generational mind meld, as as we were talking earlier about Dad's ability to transcend generations. And mm. He did a stint of writing on that show. It was just a one-off with Georgia Pritchett. Now, do you know Georgia Pritchett? Yes, I do. I yeah. suppose most famously now as a succession writer. Mm. I think she she wrote on Miranda, and I think, you know, way back, I mean, she was a gun for hire writing S Club 7 scripts. Right. But, you know, a lot of, you know, comedy writers have a back catalogue, which is like a patchwork quilt, you know. Of, yeah. of, and in that American way, they have that person who's a specialist in a way. They need those acerbic, quick-witted lines to come in off from certain... And she would be doing that. Yeah, that's the great genius of, of, of Succession is how it was able to take a very well-wrought narrative, very sort of muscular politics and everything, and they just undercut it with puerile jokes and, and <laughs> wonderfully witty one-liners. You know, as you say, gag writers. So we've got this little plastic bird sitting on the table. And Dad took a break from writing with Georgia and he came back with this plastic bird from a tobacconist. And Georgia said, uh, he put it on the table and spun it round and he didn't really explain anything about it. And then after a while, a bit more rice, he said, Barry, what's, what's the bird all about? He said, oh, I, just, I just saw it in the shop and I, I really liked it. And I thought I would bring it back to the writer's room. But it became sort of not a, a metaphor, I wouldn't aggrandise it like that, but it just became a great symbol to me of Dad's silliness. Mm. And this, this, he wasn't obsessed with fame or wealth or his position in the industry particularly. You know, his luxury on Des Tile and Discs was an audio recording of us as kids at home. And that's what he loved, the, a busy domestic environment, which mm. he was denied very early in, in his life. Yes, I think he explained to me during... Yeah. That, that's why he wanted the photograph of his father, because yes. his father died when he was five, didn't he? That's right. He said how important it was to him, his marriage and his family, and the fact that he'd been there for his kids and everything. So the, the, the sort of clutter in the, in the Cryer household, of which this bird was <laughs> emblematic, uh, he had a, a um, very well-known for telling parrot jokes uh, towards the end of his life as well. <laughs> we managed to collect about uh, 10 or 11 of them. So he, people kept sending him parrots. So he had a few parrots and he had a, also had a Tarzan alarm clock, um, <laughs> which I should give the great Johnny Weissmuller sort of scream. I think when he first bought it, he didn't really announce it. It just sort of happened. It's like mm -hmm. you're sitting, you know, having having lunch with him or something and this thing would go off in the other room. <laughs> what was that? Like Tarzan. Oh, that's just my Tarzan alarm clock. Dad was uh, remarkably consistent, but both at home and at work, just these silly trinkets. And so I, I treasured that. And, uh, and also it summed up a sort of a slightly obsessive side to him, which I was aware of in lots of different ways, as we all are of parents or, you know, family members. But I realised that this sort of slightly obsessional thing about small things, uh, small objects, was one of the things that made him such a great writer and a gag teller is that he was a very good mental archivist, not a very good physical one. Mm. Um, in writing the book, I was digging around, you know, letters and reviews and things like that, but not a lot of archive material of sketches because Dad would, he'd write something and then back in the day, literally throw it away and, and start again. He was interested in what was coming next. So when he became known for 
being a talking head, talking about comedians that had left us, friends of his, colleagues of his. Mm. Uh, he'd always say, I'm happy to do that and celebrate why they were brilliant, but the past is a wonderful place, but I don't want to live there. Yeah. So he never wanted to... So that's why, again, you know, going back to this thing about why he was so interested in new young comics and staying in touch with developments in comedy was just... That was just the thing that interested him more. Mm. I first met him at the comic strip. Right. The Raymond Review Bar. So they had the strippers in one theatre and Rick Mail in another. Can you turn up there with Dave Allen? You're not that much further from the windmill no. in that sense, both in terms of geography, where those two buildings uh, were and, and are, but also in the fact that the, the comics are on between the strippers. And you see why these comedians grew such a thick skin, because often, you know, most of the time the audiences they were playing to were not there to see them. no. So that's my first offering for you. Well, it's lovely because I could so easily be talking to you and you saying, well, he was always away, he was always working, I never saw him. If you were talking to... I'm, I'm, the, young, I'm the youngest of four mm. and my eldest brother is 11 years older than me. Mm. So if you were talking to him, he might say that. Right. I benefited from a slight shift in both dad's career and the industry generally in as much as you used to have to go into the BBC. You worked in an office and you would then have the producer at the, the end of the corridor. Lots of benefits to that, obviously, because it, it meant that the chain of command was visible and transparent. And you could, in the, you know, in the Dennis Main Wilson sort of era of producers, you could go to them with an idea and say, I've got an idea for Tommy Cooper. Yeah. And they'd, they'd listen to you and there'd be creative control. And some people, even off the back of that with, you know, not too many credits on their cv we go well you know give us three episodes and yeah you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't go through a whole process i of, remember of, it happening uh, i remember the writer's room there was a writer's room at the end of the comedy corridor right at yes Langham place yes. at the bbc that was for radio and it would be full of young writers writing things and then walking in and saying what about that as a sketch and it's a tremendously healthy environment that isn't it because you you know you you're getting an honesty with the process yeah so that had changed yeah. it? by the time that i was sort of cognizant of dad being not just my father but having a presence on television it was sort of mid 80s to late 80s and mm. he'd, he'd become enough of a name that he wasn't having to go to an office and write he could sit at home with david nobbs or graham garden or peter vincent mm -hmm. dick vosborough these wonderful names yeah he was around a lot more because he wasn't always on the writing staff he was often script editing he certainly did that for russ abbott and people like bobby davro and wrote briefly i think for little and large i mean there's mm. very few names that he didn't have some connection with no and of course around that time kenny everett yeah russ abbott was the last time he was a dedicated writer for a show and dad always said kenny was the most that's the most fun he ever had <laughs> on, on on a show because they, they half the script was blank sometimes the shooting script because they'd had an idea, but they hadn't quite worked it out. And this thing again of of the best stuff happening in the heat of the moment, and the you know the white heat. I mean, Dad famously tried to write with John Cleese once, and and uh, you know Dad was like, "Well, that's not working. Let's screw it up and throw it away. You throw it in the waste paper bin." And John would go, "No, no, no, give it time. I, you know, try mm -hmm. to work out and this this analysis." You know, you don't want to detract too much because look at the the, the diamonds that came from the compression of that carbon. Yeah. You know, the pressure that he placed on himself and Connie Booth to to create um, faulty towers. Mm. When you think coming off the back of Python as well, with all those disparate, different kinds of voices, how mm. that how that sort of hung together in that way. Uh, mainly, I think because you know John found a uh, a much more sort of acquiescent partner in Graham Chapman, so who they obviously shared, and uh, you know. 
John Cleese said it all, you know, to, to Graham Chapman, are you, are you uh, being unfaithful to me with Baz? <laughs> but yeah, they wrote for quite a long time, Dad and Graham, and it was, you know, that was a, a very different kind of relationship. But, but with and a John, different though, sort of writing. It was... It's really interesting that he should be writing Python at that time and yeah. Doctor in the House. Well, they they were yeah they, they were paying rent mortgages Point. like everybody yeah. else and and so being guns for hire, which uh, obviously Mike Palin and, and and Terry Jones were doing on on, I forget the name of the the kids TV show they were they were working just before. Do not adjust your set. I think that's right. Yes, yes, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Well, all right, let's put that bird in then. Yes, Bob is your first thing. It has to include the plinth that With it came plinth, on, so they can spin. because because we lost yes. the plinth, and this was Dad's obsessional thing. Oh. He was devastated, so his go-to replacement was a salt cellar. <laughs> so you'd go around for fish and chips with mum and dad and he, you'd be past the salt cellar with this this uh, bird hovering on top of it Brilliant. and have to remove it to, to to put it on so it was just all part of the sort of po-face ritual of it all but um, yeah that that doesn't quite sum up my father but it sums up an aspect of playfulness and silliness that mm. uh, I'd be loath to uh, to forget we still have it of course you know yeah. so yeah. so I, I can entrust that to you lovely that's safe in there don't we that's number one okay Right, it's what we call funding time for this podcast, which means unless you're an Acast Plus subscriber, we have to play you some adverts. Let's hope they entertain. Back in a sec. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. So, rather like a warm-up man, I hope the ads weren't so good that you would rather listen to them than discover the rest of the things that Bob Cryer would like to have in his time capsule. Good, because here they are. But my second thing is a is a thing that I don't have that I would like to have, mm-hmm. uh, and it is a physical object, and it, it's it's still I'm staying with family, but I'm I'm branching out to uh, to my mother, who she has something in common with my wife, in that they both lost. I mean, this is an appearance on your podcast that's motivated by a book that has come from loss, mm-hmm. dedicated to my father celebrating his life, but you know that seems to be something that 
you know, uh, by the very nature of human existence. We will we'll go through it at some point. We're very lucky if we're spared it for many years, um, uh, which actually I have and, uh, until my, my grandmother died when I was eight and I didn't know her that well. But uh, really, until my father died, um, you know, that's the sort of closest to me in my near family. And I feel very fortunate in that regard to have had him for so long mm. compared to his own father. But my... My mother and my wife both lost their brothers in their early 20s. My brother-in-law, as would have been, sadly he died before my wife and I got married, but he died in a, in a car accident in South Africa when he was in his mid-20s. Mm. And my uncle, Tony, who I never knew, my mum's my middle brother, he was in the Royal Air Force and was testing jets in Cyprus in the early 1950s. And he spent his war because he was I think he's uh seven or eight years older than my mother so she she was also the youngest but also older than my dad so her war uh she was seven when it started she's 1932 she's now 91 by the way and hmm. uh, still sharp as attack um but uh she spent her war obviously very conscious of it my dad less so he was four when it started and we're living in Leeds largely his war was was unaffected by any near danger but mum mum grew up in Brighton and very often the story was she used to say that the the bombs that the Luftwaffe hadn't unleashed on uh, the east end of London found their way in Brighton so she had a very visceral experience of of the war and therefore her brother who would have been I suppose maybe 15 16 when it started and was very taken with the radio reports of of the the RAF's raids into Germany, kept a a pristine, I suppose the equivalent now would be those sort of Moleskine notebooks, but the, you know, those uh, those classic uh, leather-bound notebooks. And in beautiful handwriting, every single night of the war, or at least when there was a report of the bombing raids, would draw up a bit like a cricket score. I mean, it sounds a bit macabre, but like a cricket score. He'd write down the, you know, the place where it had happened, the, the the type of plane. I mean, it was sort of quite a mawkish form of train spotting, but, <laughs> but I stumbled across it as a kid and it was black ink for all of the X column where he'd, he'd listed all of the planes and then the red ink was for all the numbers. Was he involved in the war then, your uncle? No, he joined the RAF just as the war was ending. Right. And then, you know, obviously when, when jet technology was taking off, he, he was... Uh, considered experienced enough but also young enough to to withstand the the nature of that which Mm. was both a blessing and a curse from his point of view and so my mother realized i was quite taken with it that one time in my early 20s i I asked to borrow it for a research i was doing for a play and i i kept it on me and as things do in families i i kind of hung on to it for for a bit too long and i moved house a couple of times and I'm I'm sad to say I don't know how it happened, but uh, but it, it it's it's lost, and I'm I'm just hoping his uh, his two sons aren't listening to this because they mm. they may have heard tell of the story, and my mum might have been too polite to uh, point in my direction as the the culprit. But mm. uh, I th- I mean it may not be lost. It's it's like one of those family heirlooms that's in a someone else's attic, or I may have lent it to someone else or whatever. But but for some reason, and I've carried this, you know guilt around my mother's catholic um for for many many years and recently because of dad and and uh you know families obviously then start to reflect on those that are no longer with us and the things that bind us we mum and i were you know sitting talking one day about the book and 
And I just said, I, I'm really sorry. I just don't think I, I have it. So I, I had to tell her quite recently mm. that that was gone. But it, so it's a, it's a great sort of motivating factor to find it. Uh, so by the by the great magic of your uh, <laughs> your <laughs> podcast, if I can if I can commit it to the, the the time capsule, then I can at least make it exist again. Yes, uh, just in some form. But also uh, the memory of it, though the memory of it. And it's weird because it's it's not a man I knew, but I, I no that's I, the, I, that's the interesting thing about it. This is a man well before your life is dead. My mother yeah. had a brother who died just after the war, and she never talked about him. He was demobbed went to a pub and somebody accused him of looking at his girlfriend and said, come on, outside. And he said, I really do. Look, I've been through a war, mate. I don't want to. He walked outside. The man turned around, punched him. He went down and died. Oh, my. One punch. Yeah. But, I mean, in a way, flying jets, you know, in, do you say, <laughs> down in, in Cyprus? In, in Cyprus, yeah. that's right. Was it as a result of the flying? Did he crash? He did. Good Lord. So he was, he was testing jets. So, in a, you know, he gave his life to improve the technology. Mm. It's interesting you say your mother never talked about this brother. Mm. Um, my grandmother, dad's mother, very rarely talked about dad's dad that, mm-hmm. that died when he was five. Uh, out of, I know not what, an emotional reserve, a wish to spare dad from the trauma of it or reliving the trauma of it. He'd been dead, I think, for a couple of days before she told him. Mm. And he famously, certainly in our family anyway, he's told it a couple of times, perhaps even on your podcast, but he hit a boy in the playground. He just said, your dad's dead. And this one punch thing, dad who, you know, not not a reputation as a violent man, (laughs) even as a a five-year-old, hit him. And Mm. uh, she sort of had to, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I didn't want you to... uh, you know, to to worry about things when you've got a football match on, or you've got to, yeah, you know, yeah. you've got to classes to get through. And everything well, we else. all do strange things that suits yeah. people's sensibilities, but uh, you know, I, I think these things are ex- are very excusable. And also, maybe maybe you say to yourself, maybe I'm not asking the right questions because, then, uh, as with anyone that uh, that dies, um, and and dad included, uh, of course, there's just as he's left, that there are a million questions I want to ask him, mm-hmm. and that he would have felt the same about his father and and to you know uh to 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 lighten the tone a little bit there was a uh he had an uncle as well uncle norman who i think smoked woodbines or at least always had a cigarette on the corner of his mouth and a flat cap i mean this is cliched leads of the you know 1940s and 50s but yeah. but dad was rather obsessed with uncle norman i think there was some maiden aunts about six maiden aunts in the city of leeds at the time and the crier certainly the male criers didn't leave the village, the, you know, going back several generations, the same village for a long time, mm. a place called Kildwick. Uh, and it was only until Dad's grandfather, Charles, moved to Leeds, which is a fairly exotic thing to do at the time. <laughs> uh, and then, then of course, my, my uncle, uh, John, who, again, I, I, I never knew, really. Uh, he, he went into the Merchant Navy and my dad, you know, became, uh, became a comedian down in that London. You know, mm. he came back for a bit, so he left behind a bit of Yorkshire that he didn't talk about a lot at home. But every now and again, he'd talk about Uncle Norman. And I can sort of see the sort of cheeky chappy persona filling the gaps that, you know, he, he didn't have with his own father. There's a fact I found out years and years ago. In fact, um, I remember somebody telling me at one of those parties as we were drinking wine. And he said, Dan, you're the wine waiter. 
to your dad. And I said, what does that mean? He was the wine waiter in the first iteration of the Yorkshireman, you know. The four Yorkshireman sketch. He was the only Yorkshireman in the four Yorkshireman sketch. (laughs) It's that that amazing. (laughs) I can absolutely understand the desire to have that book back. Yeah. Because this is someone you didn't know, but it's, uh, it's your mother's brother. Yes. And also, that's a time that is so fascinating, isn't it? The idea that you'd sit yeah. there and watch those things come in and watch that happen and keep yeah. a record of it in detail. And he was listening to the radio as well, so he was getting the reports of the bombing raids in Germany. Amazing. I don't know whether that then went on to be of use to the local authorities at the time. And in mm. fact, I should be asking the right questions because mum's sister, my auntie Pat, is 102. Yes. She very definitely remembers the war because, uh, you know, it was 1921 when she joined us. This and there amazing, are many left. Yeah. No, there my God, no. There are many left. No. Um, so there are these, yeah, there are these gaps in the family tree of these. Uh, and I've got someone on my mother's side. Uh, it's a great, great uncle of mine. Uh, called Ernest Donovan. She's a Donovan um, from from Cork. He went to Canada for a bit to become a chain man, which was um, a, in survey. It was a surveying term. Right. Obviously, he, he had some photographic background, but he would then also lay out the the chains for you know measuring distances between things. Which uh, I didn't expect to tell this story, but he uh, that became very useful when he fought in the First World War because. He was under Hill 60. He fought on the for the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And he was part of the surveying team that would go ahead to build the tunnels. Wow. That they would try and go underneath German lines. Mm. And a bit like the Channel Tunnel, they met some Germans halfway <laughs> doing the same thing. And I think that I think this is right. Uh, I'm sure historians out there might might correct me, but that's that's how he lost his life in the end. It was that uh, he was either discovered in the tunnels or at least they'd sort of opened up a connection that the Germans were able to exploit and then attack them in, in, behind their lines. But yeah. but he had the, he had the most uh, amazing sort of whirlwind romance to a woman called Mary Conroy, who I think he, he knew when he was young in Brighton. And when he moved to Canada, he came back to Sussex, obviously, to train as a soldier in 1916 to fight. He actually lied about his age because he was too old, <laughs> not the other way around. Came back, married Mary Conroy, saw her for a week, went to the front and never came back. So it was... Good uh, Lord. So he managed to do that. So that's, you know, that's sort of all tied into that thing of, I think, to make it relevant to <laughs> to my presence with you here today is, is, is to keep telling stories about people that are no longer around. Yeah whether they're famous like my dad or or not like you know Frank Donovan that my that my mother didn't even know anything about and I've just stumbled upon his life because it has a resonance to my own which mm. will bring us on to the third object right okay about Canada so uh, you know I was very keen after I was approached to write the book you know that uh, I'd rather I did it or I didn't want someone else to do it and I'm now just sort of getting into the you know the early stages of promoting the book but mm. realizing what an absolute joy it is to keep telling stories about my father because mm. it's what he spent his whole life doing as yes. well yes how proud would he be i think i'm sure he'd have some notes but uh, <laughs> <laughs> i mean certainly in terms of brevity <laughs> that's one thing we did I, I mean i was very envious always very envious of dad's economy i'm a i'm very much a long form storyteller as you've probably gathered already but uh, well no um, but I I think it's interesting to carve your own path you know it's a very difficult thing to have a, a successful father in one area and then in a way to sort of go do you know what dad i'm sort of going to go in the same direction but yeah. but i'm not i'm going to go my own way my two older brothers decided they were they were very much happier away from the spotlight whereas mm. myself and my sister 
who's five years older than me. She's a fantastic singer mm. with a natural ability that was uh, infused by dad on regular occasions. Mum, mum's a singer mm. too, and that's where they met. They met in Danny Larue's nightclub. Mum and dad. Uh, dad always said they they met on the same day that Ronnie Corbett met his wife Anne, and I tossed a coin and I married your mum instead. Um, <laughs> Luckily, didn't marry Ronnie Corbett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were married in different ways, uh, Dad and Ronnie, for for quite a while afterwards. But no, my my dad used to say about my sister, she gives lessons to tuning forks. Ah, um, that's great. I mean, again, that economy, mm. and it's also a great way of giving your child a compliment without it seeming too fawning, you know, or yeah. or, to, or too nepo baby, you know, which yeah. uh, obviously is you know a very current phrase and something that I. I've grown up with uh, and it's it's odd actually that, that quite a, a lot of my friends in the industry Ray Galton's son Andrew Galton said I'm thinking of forming a support group called uh, Sons or Daughters of Famous Fathers <laughs> which again you know the acronym of that is, I can spell it out for your <laughs> listeners is very much in his father's way of telling you know of, of telling it's the kind of thing that Sid James could have said in, uh, yes, you know, or Tony Hancock you know I know <laughs> I was very lucky to work just right at the end with Ray and Alan, they yeah. actually sort of almost came out of retirement, really, to work on the Paul Merton versions of their scripts. Yes, and, yes, and they were in the course. room the whole time, yeah. and they would say, "That's not really working, that joke, is it?" And you go, <laughs> "That joke, it's it's a famous joke, yeah." But we can write something funnier than that. Oh, isn't that great? Isn't it's not it? not precious, not precious at all. No, and you think how finely tailored a lot of that material is like you say yeah and that they, they're I, I of... even remember a dinner with i'm sure it was alan who was saying yeah you see the problem is a pint isn't really an armful is uh... it? <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly don't let the truth get in the way of a good line <laughs> uh, which is what they would but i love the sort of genesis of that because i i did speak to them about that particular episode for um again one of the uh, the huge benefits of uh of of being dad's son is i was able to for my university degree talk to some uh, some writers about Hancock in particular and obviously they were the the fount of it all and they're saying well that right that line originally was a, a pint that's an armful and then it was always the to sit and then stew on something and go, now hold on we're not quantifying this well enough it's a, a pint that's nearly an armful no hold on hold on <laughs> that's very nearly an armful yeah. which has a whole different rhythm yeah. and a whole different musicality to it it's it's, it's beautiful mm-hmm. stuff that's the skill. There are some writers that go, no, there, there's definitely something here mm-hmm. and, and I just need to keep picking at it. J.B. Priestley, one of my dad's favourite writers, you know, said um, it's a very easy thing to ignore, but the difference between a professional and an amateur is that as a professional writer, you get up and write when you don't want to. <laughs> it's very simple. The really dedicated, skilled professional will hammer away at it until it's done. I think that's maybe why a lot of professionals, like you said with your dad, would say, let's not sit here and analyse comedy. No. Because in a way, they'd already done it in their head. Yeah. How marvellous. Well, let's move on to the next thing you want to put into the time capsule. So going back to Canada, which is where my uncle found himself in the backwoods, um, hadn't held any particular attraction for me uh, until I met my wife at university, the University of Warwick. Her mother's from Toronto. They have a big, vast army of family and friends um, back home. So they visit for as long as they can over the summer where, you know, in in, in Canada, what you do is you you leave the city and you go to your cottage, whether it's a small shack on the, you know, the... uh, um, the outskirts of the Adirondacks in Quebec, or you're in a, a place called Muskoka, two and a half hours north of, of Toronto, which is where I go to every summer. One of the benefits of being a freelancer, if I can afford <laughs> the time off. Yes. Uh, if I've had a good year, uh, I will take a bit longer in the summer 
to spend up there. I've never been there, but it's remarkably beautiful, isn't it? Well, it's it's on Golden Pond, mm. really. That's So if you want the immediate go-to uh, sort of image or feeling of it, it's that. And it's, you know, it's part the idea of those... I won't call them pioneers because, as we know, there was a First Nation and uh, an indigenous <laughs> mm. uh, uh, set of pioneers that had been there for uh, for many, many thousands of years. But those first European settlers, let's put it that way, who went up to this, you know, inhospitable to them, anyway, uh, climate, uh, uh, which from bitter experience is, is mainly about the black flies and the, the mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, certainly not the cold weather you get for three months of the year in Canada is only... Uh, is only the half of it, but if you get you know much much further north, away from civilization and and uh, and, and towns and cities and, and stuff, it's all about the rainfall followed by the immediate surge of mosquitoes around about five or six o'clock at night. <laughs> yes. That you've got to get into your tent or or into your house with a screen door. But my wife and I met when we were twenty one, and pretty much from, I suppose we got married in ninety ninety eight. I had my first summer in 97, around about the time Dad was buying a plastic bird uh, uh, whilst writing with Georgia Pritchett, I was being introduced to the family back home in Canada uh, and just instantly fell in love with the, the landscape. And as you, you know, as you rightly say, it's by legend, it's a, a beautiful place. But, but there's one thing you need to do uh, in order to really get to know uh, Canada and Canadians well, certainly being, you know, a Brit, uh, and that's to paddle. Right. And that's to get in a canoe mm-hmm. and do something which is which is not something we're taught at secondary school <laughs> in the UK. Uh, you know, you, you might have your swimming badges, but uh, yes. you know, can you do a J stroke? But the object that I want to present to you, with with great reluctance to hand it over, uh, is not a canoe. Even though I did fulfil the Canadian stereotype two years ago of uh, not only the the proud owner of a of, of a four by four. But also, I bought a canoe for the very first time. I'd always borrowed, begged or borrowed one from from family. Uh, and I strapped it to the top of the 4x4. Four four. <laughs> and I just, I, I immediately took a picture of me in my, my as they call it, plaid shirt over there, my Czech shirt, mm-hmm. looking, you know, like the wild man of the mountains. And a little bit what they would describe as cosplaying, probably, being the full, <laughs> the full lumberjack. But, um, you know, I've played sport all my life and I've, like a lot of people, found a certain amount of, uh, of peace and euphoria from, from doing it. But until I'd paddled down a river into a, a lake at um, 5.30 in the morning, just as the sun comes up, and these birds, uh, as they're called in, in Scotland, the Great Northern Diver, but in Canada and, and North America in general, they call the loon, mm-hmm. these prehistoric black and white birds, massive, massive birds, and their call uh, first thing in the morning. Until you connect with that, and again, thinking of this distant uncle and what, what he was experiencing back then when Canada was, uh, uh, was in its infancy as a country, it has this huge amount of, of space, which growing up in northwest London <laughs> yeah. was, uh, you know, something you'd seen in movies or you'd, you'd see John Ford Western, you think about North America as the, the wide open spaces. And that's that's the US. And then you get to Canada and you think of all of the second biggest country in the world with half the population of the UK. There's a palpable sense of openness and space. Mm. And, and so it's not the canoe, it's the paddle that my wife bought me uh-huh. for our 20th wedding anniversary. And it's actually, it was made in the UK. It was made in uh, Northumberland, bizarrely. So it has this lovely sort of 
cross-cultural appeal in both directions, mm. that here I am, this Brit, attempting to, to paddle like a Canadian, but I'm doing, I'm doing so with an English or a British paddle, which I keep over there, and it's a beaver tail paddle for, the, for those aficionados out there, but, right. it's, uh, but it doesn't make a sound. Well, that's lovely because actually you are a British Canadian, I'm going to have to say that, because yes. all Canadians, when they say, I, I want something to remember Canada by, uh, would talk about having some sort of cheesy chips. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, poutine. That's it. Yeah, yeah. which is cheese curds and gravy and, and, and chips, yeah. which is, you know, I think for any British students wanting to study out there, sating a hangover with <laughs> with <laughs> poutine is that there is nothing, yeah, nothing mm. like it, but uh, not on a regular basis. <laughs> no. If you want to keep paddling fast. Um, <laughs> You're going to need to counteract Yeah, it. no, I know. Well, actually, but again, you know, I do start one chapter of the book by saying hope was born in a blizzard. And that's uh, my eldest daughter is called Hope. Mm. And she was she was born in Toronto because we actually we spent three years living there. And mum and dad hate flying or hated flying. Mum still hates it. But the last time she jumped on a plane was in 2003 when our, when our eldest daughter was born. And seeing dad out of context in Canada, because unless, I mean, there's obviously a, a great British expat community there. A lot of people moved there in the 60s, but they certainly wouldn't have said, oh my goodness, it's, it's Barry Cryer from I'm Sorry, I Haven't a Clue. Mm-hmm. So he was really left to his main skills, storytelling, jokes, anecdotes about you know, about American comedians because he did work with Jack Benny, Bob Hope, Richard Pryor. So Des O'Connor tried to launch himself in the States, I think, and did a, filmed a load of of, um, American stars when they were over talking to him Mm. in London. And Richard Pryor was on one. So that's why he has Richard Pryor on his CV because dad would sit in the green room and he'd be responsible for sitting with the, you know, the, the interviewees and saying, Okay, well, the you know the Home Secretary at the moment has just made a you know a statement about X, Y, and Z, or we wouldn't really use that idiom, or don't use that term, or don't refer to that person, or, mm. and then just seeing him at this local sports bar, you know, <laughs> he knew nothing about North American sports, but just sitting and chatting and breaking the ice with with people with no sort of frame of reference at all. The Canadians are are brilliantly self-deprecating, and and uh, that's one thing that that Dad really loved about the culture over there. It's the down-to-earth nature of your, you know, there's no such thing as an average Canadian, but such that I have met thus far, yes, I would, I would, I would concur. They're a very gentle, kind, you know, welcoming country. Well, to remind you of it and to make you feel as Canadian as I possibly can, I'm going to put that paddle in there. <laughs> Beaver tail, yeah. Beaver tail paddle. Well, thank you very much. But as, as I say, I'll, I'll give it up quite reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> we can cheat this. I can put a whole lake in. so that's three things we've got in there so we've got two left you can either do the one you want to get rid of or the one you want to keep i'll do the one i want to get rid of but i will hold that thought or at least your promise to give me a whole lake (laughs) um because that that will be related to my fourth and final keeper as it were i i I, i'd like i need a bit of space for that one right uh but i will turn to the thing that i want to bury not for posterity but uh that i want to forget uh, and I, you know, I thought of, 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 of some glib answers like, um, 
uh, I'd like to forget Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> but like my father, I'm very reticent to be critical or, or too too negative about a creative act. Yeah. So I'm not going to put that in because I think it would be churlish, but I just sort of wanted to <laughs> just earmark that. Yeah. Another thing I, I was going to put in, it was, I felt frightfully earnest, uh, but it was to pay homage to my to my wonderful wife's life and work as a teacher. My journey through life has been as much about... Uh, show business and talking about comedy and acting and music as it has been you know about education mm. and she is now a head teacher and we uh, we actually live i'm speaking to you from a school wow so I, we live on site and so it is all around us all the time and one thing that she is uh, very much involved in at the moment it's her first headship she's only in her second year of it but which is is trying to move her school away from quite a regimented examination regimen mm-hmm. and into something a little more assessment based and things that you know we were starting to break the ice with properly on the sort of national scale with things like GCSEs being you know at 60% you know assessment and 40% exams i think just from the sheer point of view of having three children with various degrees of fear yeah. of the exam and of the test, and as a parent, seeing them either acquit or not acquit themselves because of this fearful three hours on a yes. Friday morning suddenly defines their life. And, yeah, and yeah. you know, my wife, as an actor by trade, became a teacher like a, a, a lot of us do mm. <laughs> through sheer expedience. You know, uh, the joke always went that uh, I, I said to my mother, when I grow up, I want to be an actor. And she said, you can't do both. Um, <laughs> of course, yeah. And my wife said, no, I'd actually like to get a proper job mm. now. Uh, if that's okay, and I, I've, um, I feel very fortunate that you know I've I've been able to to sort of prat around and be silly on the other side yeah. of uh, yeah. of the curtain. But, but we all know lots of actors that we would rather were teachers. <laughs> 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 oh, and that brings me to my choice because no, I'm I'm just kidding. Um, but no, having been on you know awful word journey, isn't it? It's very uh, reality television, but uh, being on that journey with her and seeing the great benefit of of this this sort of long side thinking because obviously in our industry mike don't we 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 sort of hop from from job to job and hand to mouth and and you don't often get a chance to think in longhand so it would have been exams that would have been my my next choice nobody's ever said to me mike (laughs) most importantly what gcses did you get and i always say well i didn't do any i did o levels Well, now's the time, Mike. The question I'm going to ask you is: <laughs> Let's We're going to go through them subject I'll get the by subject. Certificates out of the drawer. Hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. But I haven't chosen that because I recognise that again, it's a very complicated subject. Yeah. You can't just put all exams because not everyone thinks that way. So I decided to go to the very personal, uh, and it is to do with my industry and my dad's ability to stay on good terms at all times, you know, with all people, without, in some ways being um, sort of suppliant or or in some way sort of acquiescing, just being treating everyone equally, but being forceful about your own personality and and not subservient is the the word I'm looking for. Mm. So it's that and it's also Canada. Um, As I said, my wife and I lived there for three years and their work is very different out there. They're obviously enthralled to the US and Hollywood and Toronto at the time was known as Hollywood North. And a lot of, of US work was there. So it was quite a, a, a big turnover and had a fair amount of success with what they call movies of the week and, you know, shot a lot of pilots up there mm-hmm. in the Great White North. But the thing I would like to put in the time capsule, um, it's not my finest hour sort of time, 
and it speaks to something that I, I like I was saying about giving advice to younger actors or even giving myself advice and, and reminding myself of why my dad left such a wonderful legacy when he when he did leave us uh, in 2021 was an email I wrote to a casting director which was rather catty <laughs> and poisonous <laughs> and full of all of the things now that I would absolutely hate myself to be remembered for but it was a and I won't go into the I won't certainly won't give names but uh, I won't go and the people themselves know about it and I'm actually happy to say I've you know been in contact all of 20 years later since we we lived there and sort of found a way of allowing the water to flow beautifully under the bridge and olive branches and hatchets and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if that's not counterproductive to put an olive branch and bury a hatchet, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was doing quite a good line in British villains. They'd crop up quite a lot and Canadian casting directors seemed to like it. it didn't work quite so well in the opposite direction. I went to accent classes and had my general American, you know, quite well sorted. Mm. But there was much more of an outlandish, cartoonish character landed uh, in my uh, my agent's in tray that she asked me to do, and it needed to be, I suppose, a cross between a, a sort of a, a thigh slapping Howard Keel type, uh, very bombastic. And this accent, where it came from, I don't know, but it. it uh, I think that that accent maybe should go in the time capsule, <laughs> never to be to be heard again. But I I gave what I thought was a a, a truly outlandish performance in the casting. And my agent agreed, said it was outlandish and had no place being in that that room. But what happened is the agent and the casting director obviously chatted and they, between the two of them, sort of came up with the idea that that wasn't where they were going to position me in the future. Mm. Bob can't do accents was the sort of bottom line. And then, you know, the football hooligan or the the butler or whatever character would come up and I'd go for that. And then they sort of, you know, got less and less and, and, uh, you know, the law of diminishing returns. And for whatever reason, I, I don't know how I found out, but I found out through a friend of a friend that this conversation had happened. I think it might have been through the agency. And I was absolutely livid because I felt like she was potentially, uh, that's giving it away, uh, <laughs> they they were potentially, uh, you know, d- depriving me of an income. And, you know, and, and of course I was 27, 28, you know, thinking I... There's a lot of, you know, people in their late 20s think they've got the and world. And you can do anything. I exactly. mean, I can't do accents. That, again, that's another, that's another great piece of advice that uh, I was given as a writer, mm. which is you don't walk into a general meeting and go, oh, I can write anything. It's like they immediately go, well, you're not the one for us then. Because if you, <laughs> if, you, if you can write anything, then quite clearly, you know, you're in the wrong business. As my grandmother said, you can't catch every bus. No. <laughs> Some people have caught on to that quite early. I, I didn't in Toronto in, in the early noughties thinking, yeah, I can play all these roles. You made the mistake then of telling these people this, did you? I, I, I did, mm-hmm. I did. I, I, um, there's a, a, an acting coach called David Rotenberg in Toronto who said the first thing you need to do is to know your hit. He said it's not about what you think you can do, it's about how you're perceived by other people. And the sooner you realise what that is, and I know, Mike, you're very good at being self-effacing about your work, but you, you know, you're marvellously chameleon-like in lots of things, but there is a, a centre to what you do as an actor, which is based on you knowing what they see and what, you know, not what people want, but actually what you yourself are able to, to generate. I think you, you've got a very uh, consistent presence in that regard. Oh, well, thank you. You know your hit. Yeah, I think I do, yes. But the 27, 28-year-old Bob Cryer thought this was a good idea to confront my friend, I would say friend, from the industry, not heeding two things. The first thing is, if you are going to do that, do that face-to-face. 
if you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. But preferably is to write a letter, get all the things out on the page, Mm. put it in an envelope, stamp it, address it, take it to the letterbox and then screw it up and throw it in the bin Yes, (laughs) next to the letterbox. Go through the whole process for yourself because ultimately all of those, that ego stuff and all of those insecurities and all of that bitterness is turning really on yourself Mm. and any sort of sense of inadequacy you have in the industry and my obvious anxieties about doing accents, being thousands of miles away from home, trying to start a career in a different continent with a different sort of set of rules and just ultimately being very fragile about it and oversensitive. Mm. Uh, so I did the, you know, the worst thing, which was to write an email hmm. because they were quite popular at the time. Um, <laughs> but I want to put it into, uh, into this room in the time capsule or this closed box mm. because it does, you know, it is like the, the sort of antimatter of all the positive stuff that I've learnt from my father my father's knee you know and i'd lo- i'd love to blame distance for being that far away from him <laughs> to say that you know he wasn't there to counsel me or you know because i you know i did i did check in with him you know very often as as, as you've alluded to with dad's phone calls mm. he call me all the time you know often just about um you know can you find so and so bernard cribbin's phone number <laughs> but also he was not very comfortable being your kind of traditional patriarch and and handing on you know the diktats from on high no, no, no ten commandments mm-hmm. of, of comedy because as we know there's only three <laughs> so he would be backwards and coming forwards and it was very much do as I do not do as I say and and I, it's taken me until you know he, until he's left us to to put down in words a lot of what I thought he was trying to communicate to me and my siblings and to younger comedians and writers and everything else and realise that actually it was there in plain sight. Um, you know, to use a rather unfortunate term from current parlance, but dad was, you know, a lot of his great lessons were, were, were there all the time when I was growing up, even if, you know, as they say, the opportunities are there. It's just you, the talent is in recognising them. Mm. You know, there are always opportunities around. And he, um, I can't blame him for, for not intervening at this point because, yes, he, you know, he was uh, still at the end of a phone line. But to demonstrate that the fact that you can leave that behind, that you can lock that away now, is the fact that yeah. you went back yeah. and spoke to them later and you sorted this out and you apologised. I did. And, I mean, not, it's actually fairly recently, but yes. I, I think that's I, never I suppose... a problem. I think that having no. left it all that time, you can explain that through embarrassment almost. You know, yeah. you, I realised this a long time ago. I should have been saying this a long time ago, but I am saying it now. Yeah. Well, I think when people do that, people then sort of have to forgive it because you go, well, you've looked at yourself and you know exactly what you did wrong. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I made that industry specific. I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a, a lesson for, for all parts of your life. Absolutely. And, you know, all, we all make for all those times and all, and all ages. Exactly. Yeah. Ronnie Corbett had this wonderful observation of my father which is that he said, uh, Barry, I don't know what rung of the ladder you're on, but stay there. because <laughs> You seem to still be working, the phone's ringing, but you're not there to be shot at, uh, is the idea. Yeah. That, I, and Dad was always celebrating these one-offs, as he called them, people like Tommy Cooper and Eric Morecambe and Jack Benny and Kenny Everett, you know, uh, Bob Hope. And he himself was never comfortable being the star even though latterly, obviously, he became a recognised face, but even it was a it's very manageable kind of fame. Yeah. Uh, and something that Eric Idle said, oh, we were all we all found it um, lovely that your dad got some, you know, more recognition later, because we all knew 
in the industry, we were always great, great fans of his and mm. knew he was funny. But but it's this slight thing of whether it's a Yorkshire thing, I don't know, not being too big for your boots or whatever. But whenever people said, oh, you're a comedian, he'd go, no, I'm an entertainer. Huh. They go, oh, you're a writer. No, I'm a hack, really. Mm. You know, and he said, I, uh, do, do you want it done well or do you want it done Monday? You know, that kind of <laughs> yes. kind of thing. He became very good at doing that for people. And in fact, you know, Dennis Norden said what Barry Cryer wrote, uh, and he said this to dad sometimes. It's a great thing of my dad's humility that he would tell this story against himself. But Dennis Norden would often say, a lot of your stuff, Baz, it's, it's not great, but it's on time. <laughs> it's, and that's there's a great lesson to be learned yes, in the industry. Don't, don't be too precious about it. And there I was, flouting all of those laws before I'd really learned them, <laughs> mm-hmm. being very precious, being very um, ego-driven and, and, and oversensitive. And I just go, I, I go back to that moment a lot. If you put up with those, the, tolerate those parts of yourself for too long, it makes you bitter. It, and Dad was never bitter. Well, it's who you become. That's what it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you argue that you had the right to do it. No, no, I was right. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. they needed to be yeah. told that. You know, and uh, in my experience of life, very few people need to be told anything. <laughs> They're not going to listen anyway. The person you're shouting at is yourself. Yes. Tell it to the mirror and then move on. You know? <laughs> or at least go for a paddle. There, yeah, you go. there we uh, are. That's the answer. That's the great soul food for me. Is uh, mm, I'm sure. Well, let's put that away then and let's move on to the one final thing that you'd like to keep. Yes. So I've mentioned my children. I've mentioned my wife. I've mentioned my surroundings here at the school and, and, and to my love of the outdoors in Canada. I've also mentioned my sadly departed brother-in-law, Andrew. Who died in a car crash. Who died in a car crash in South Africa. Uh, and had it not been for him... We, as two young actors, as we were still, Susie was tutoring a bit at the time, living in southwest London, would not have been able to afford the house that we did because he left her some money. Mm. In, well, it was the sale of, of his flat meant that we could buy a house in the country, as we did, because we lived in Canada for three years, had a baby, decided we didn't want to move back to London or couldn't move back to London. We had this flat in, in southwest London, which was which was one bedroom and you know, with a child already five months by that point, we thought, well, let's let's move out to uh, to near Guildford. That's the sort of natural exodus, the A3 <laughs> refugees, as they're often called, from southwest London. And because my mother's from Brighton, I'd, I'd always had an affection for Sussex and ended up living on the Surrey-Sussex border near a, a town called Hazelmere, with an S, which was sort of halfway to the coast, you know, so people had boats in their driveways and the villages were were, were still something from, uh, you know, from Lark Rise to Candleford. And that kind of uh, felt like a step back in time. And we found this old couple selling a 15th century cottage with four bedrooms and, and quite an overgrown garden. And it was, it was all told, it was about an acre of garden. Wow. Our eldest daughter was three at the time, and we had a one-year-old, and then uh, a third child arrived. And our neighbour, John Wakeford, who is no longer with us, sadly, but as a carpenter, you could not have got a better source of local timber and knowledge. And combined, he actually built a whole, uh, actually not of your um, uh, Chichester County Council, he didn't build it, it never happened. But he put an extra bedroom in. Uh, that's, that's, for the new, that's for the new owners to deal with. Anyway, so we ended up with a five-bedroom cottage and an acre of garden with chickens and farmland all around us. And But my, my point 
for telling you that is not to you know have reflective glory on what a, a privileged life I was uh, leading off the back of a great tragedy. But the fact that you know my wife and I have often talked about this is the greatest gift that her brother could ever have given his nieces is that for them their childhood was almost entirely ring-fenced. Mm. They, their sort of uh, single-digit childhood, I'll say, because we were there for 10 years until 2016, and then my wife got a job that meant we have to move onto the site of the, the school where we are now uh, right. uh, to become head of boarding. And so for 10 years, it was um, there was a story called Sally's Secret, which was uh, um, just a little book only of about 10 pages, and they were um, uh, all three girls absolutely fell in love with it because it was it was like an autobiography for them. It was this little girl that would go out into the middle of her garden under a bush and have a tea party for all of her invisible you know, imaginary <laughs> friends <laughs> and all these animals she'd set up when they'd come and visit. And, and where some children would have read that story as a leap of sort of fantasy, to them it was very real. And that's that's how a lot of their childhood was spent, mm. you know, Parenting that was was incredibly easy. We were very lucky and we still look back on it all of whatever it is now, seven years later. Mm. Uh, it seems like a whole distant planet to us, but it's very palpable, the, the affection that they have for it and therefore the enthusiasm my wife and I have about that part of our life. Yes, and that gift from that terrible tragedy. Exactly, mm. exactly. So I suppose, I hope the theme of a lot of my <laughs> entries to the time capsule, even the one that I want to forget, have all had these sort of positive outcomes yeah, yeah. Or, or at least but some... Life doesn't work out the way you think it's going to, but actually Quite. it does work out. Yeah, there's clouds, there's clouds all the time in life, but you always forget that above them, the sun always shines. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you can find your way or at least remember that the sun is there and it will come out again at some point in just a different form. But that garden, we, uh, I suppose we've been chasing that ever since in the way that, you know, in a, um, in a way, my, my, my father, um, uh, we sort of psych, you know, psychologized his sort of uh, searching for his father. Spent most of his life trying to replace that with something. I think it's that's been our sort of touchstone <laughs> place to go to. His has been, uh, you know, to get back to that one time with his father making a balsa wood plane mm. by the fireside. It's about the only memory he has of him. We think we romanticize things. I think for a very strong reason is because they make good stories mm. and they're easier to remember. Well, good stories. I'm sure that your wonderful book about your father is going to be um, absolutely full of great stories. And I'm lucky in as much as I've met your father on a number of occasions and I could call him a friend. Well, he was always very fond of you. So oh, that's lovely. Very fond- Cause he, fondly cause of I've, you I've, I adored him, as did almost everybody who knew him. So, Bob, it's been really fabulous to listen to you and to talk to you and to get to know you, in fact. Likewise. And uh, obviously, all I can say now is um, same time tomorrow. <laughs> perfect you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my lovely guest bob crier thank you for listening to me and bob chatting away i hope it gave you a picture of the sweet man that bob is and brought back happy memories of his lovely dad if you enjoyed it then do rate it before you go and please subscribe to this podcast as well Let's be honest, the more subscribers we have, the more the advertisers will pay us. 
not really your concern, but it is nice to be paid. I mean, we can't all be politicians and just do it for the love, you know. Do follow me and my time capsule on social media, even ex-social media. Maybe soon, if things carry on the way they've been going. I hope not. I really enjoy the relationships I've built up with people on Twitter, as I continue to call it. I sit there with my Nokia phone, browsing CFAX and eating a marathon, just chatting away. I've made friends on there. So if you want to join in that conversation, I and John on my time capsule are easy to find and very easy to please. Contact us, why not? You can also listen to John's composition and playing on the theme tune, which he wrote under the name of Pass the Peas Music, which I think tells you all you need to know about my son. It's available for Nout on Spotify. This was a cast-off production produced by John for Acast, available wherever you get your podcasts. So do tell your friends, your enemies, and in fact, the world. We'll be back very soon with more guests, but in the meantime, I should tell you the Archbishop of Canterbury joke, in case you've not heard it. The last joke that Bob's dad, Barry, ever told me. So, there are two old ladies sitting at a bus stop, and an old man sits down at the bus stop on the other side of the road, and the first lady says, Isn't that the Archbishop of Canterbury? And the second lady says, I don't know. So the first one says, Well, go and ask him. So the old lady walks across the road, talks to the old man, and comes back, and the first lady says, Well... And the other lady says, he told me to fuck off. And the first lady says, oh, well now we'll never know. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.